Well, I invite and encourage you all to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes 1. And the guys have some Bibles, so that if you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back. We want everybody to be able to look at the passage that we'll be considering, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Most of us will spend half the waking hours of our adult lives at work. So since work consumes so much of our time, we understandably try to find ways to make it worthwhile and to get the most out of it. So we set goals for our careers. We purchase motivational books and attend seminars. We remind ourselves of the important role that we play in the organization. And then we look forward to retirement. Now, those of us who have spent time in the workplace, and especially in office environments, we've seen posters around the building, or we receive emails from the boss that are designed to lift our minds from what really can become quite mundane and routine. These motivational tools often have a beautiful graphic with a catchy, uplifting, memorable phrase to spur us on through the day. Some years ago, a company did a spoof of these motivators by creating what they call demotivators. These demotivators have the same graphic and same kind of font on the text, but they're actually poking fun at these catchy sayings, poking fun at our attempts to get motivated. So here's one. Motivation, and you can't read the bottom, but it says... If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a pretty easy job. And then it says, the kind that robots will be doing soon. As I said, we set uh, goals for ourselves, but of course we're not the only one doing that. So this next one says, goals. And then it says, it's best to avoid standing between a competitive jerk and his goals. And we might be just one person doing our job in the organization, but we remind ourselves that what we are doing is crucial to its success. But this demotivator is entitled worth. And at the bottom it says, just because you're necessary like a cog doesn't mean you're important. And then finally, you grind through the years and approach retirement, which, according to this last one, is reached when... You've given so much of yourself to the company, you don't have anything left that we can use. (laughs) So we create these ways of convincing ourselves of the value of our labor. Because when we really think about it, it's not all that clear that there is real significance in our work. Something that we spend about half of our adult lives doing, whether in paid work or volunteer work or work in the home... What does all of that activity amount to? What does it all ultimately accomplish? Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, asked this very question in verse 3 of chapter 1. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now, this is a rhetorical question, the answer to which Solomon already knows, which is nothing. What do we gain from our work? He says nothing. 
Now that at first seems to contradict something that this very same Solomon said in one of the other three books of the Bible that he wrote. In the book of Proverbs, he said this, all hard work brings a profit. So how can he say on the one hand that our work amounts to nothing, and yet much of the book of Proverbs is devoted to extolling the virtues of work? And after all, if we don't work, we can't survive. Or at least we shouldn't survive if we're able-bodied and refuse to work. Did you know the Bible says that? The Bible says this, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And this is just an aside, but parents or grandparents, if you are supporting someone who is unwilling to work, then you are enabling that. And the Bible would tell you not to do that. Don't enable someone not to do what God has called all of us to do, namely to work. Without work, families would be ruined, communities would collapse. So how does Solomon say, on the one hand, it's worth less, but on the other hand, that in all labor there is is profit? Well, notice these advantages of work that I've mentioned are relative advantages. Those who work are better off than those who do not, and they indeed enjoy some temporary benefits from that work. So one way to harmonize these two, our work really amounts to nothing. On the other hand, there's profit in all hard work. One way to harmonize those is to recognize that Solomon in Proverbs is talking about relative gain, but in Ecclesiastes, he's talking about ultimate gain. And I say that because the Hebrew word that's translated gain in verse 3, it comes from a verb that means to be left over, to remain. As when one invests in a business, paying expenses and receiving income, and then at the end of the year, you check what's left over. So this word in verse 3, gain, is about that. What's left over? It could also be translated as, as profit. What do people profit from all the labor at which they toil? And as you think about it, as you think about it in terms of ultimate value rather than just relative value, the answer to that question is a resounding and a depressing nothing. And then if you add that to the ultimately meaningless work in which we engage... And recognize that it's associated most often with difficulty and pain. It becomes all the more depressing. In fact, the biblical word for toil frequently refers to trouble or anguish, misery. Solomon says that in the anguish and misery that characterizes our work, there is ultimately no gain. We make our plans and they often do not come to fruition. We try to save, but we just can't seem to get ahead. And if we do get ahead, then what has been accumulated can be wiped out depending on the vicissitudes. I just like to say that every now and then. The ups and downs of the national economy or our own personal circumstances. We strive to move ahead in the company, but someone else gets the promotion. And the few advantages that we manage to hang on to sooner or later, we die and we leave them for someone else to squander. We came into this world with nothing. And we're going to leave this world 
with the same thing. You've heard it said that you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. So where is the profit? Where is the gain? Well, cheer up, because the title of this series in Ecclesiastes is how to find meaning in a meaningless world. So in this and in all the messages in this book, we don't want to linger only on what can be meaningless, and there's much of that in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we want to look at how to imbue it with true and lasting significance. We'll do that today as well. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us. We thank you for gathering us because you have done it. You have made the way. In your providence, working in our circumstances to allow us to be here. Your spirit has worked in our hearts to give us a desire to be here. So, Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for gathering us before your word. We ask you, Lord, to grant us minds that put aside the cares with which we came into this room so that we can focus our attention on the important word that you have for us. Help us to have hearts that are open to make application of your word to our individual lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you were with us last week as we introduced this series, you may remember that we looked at the first two verses and we then noted Solomon's verdict on life that it is all, he says in those two verses, meaningless. And that was based on looking at life from under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, the first of which is in the verse that I read just a bit ago, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil, notice, under the sun? In the very last chapter of the book, chapter 12 and verse 8, the very same thing that was said at the beginning in chapter 1 uh, and verses 1 and 2 is repeated. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So you have at the very beginning of the book this idea that everything is meaningless. At the end of the book... Everything is meaningless. And so you have these bookend verses, and they form what's called an inclusio. And that signals that the entire book, everything in between, is about that. That all is meaningless. But it's important as we move forward now, looking at all of that stuff that's meaningless, that we remember the caveat that it is meaningless if viewed from the perspective under the sun. So this book is looking at life, and this passage we're going to consider today is looking at work, but it's looking at it from under the sun, from the perspective that sees all of life apart from God being in the equation. And from that perspective, it is indeed meaningless. And so I say in the outline that is inserted in your program, if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And we see that from the perspective under the sun, work apart from God is of no value. Work apart from God is of no value. From an earthbound perspective, 
looking at life from a secular point of view, apart from God, all our activity is really just like a hamster on a wheel. Running furiously, but going nowhere. You ever have one of those hamster cages? And you got the little wheel? And the little guy is just going with all his might. But going nowhere. And Solomon illustrates that as really the way it is ultimately for us apart from God under the sun. And he gives us examples from nature. I say in your outline that these lives of ours that are apart from God and then ultimately of no value are like the repetition of nature. Verse five says, or excuse me, verse four says this. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Now Solomon's going to prove his point with a carefully constructed argument. He first compares the futility of human life with the cycles that we can observe in nature. Verse 4 says literally, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now notice the way I just said that. A generation goes and a generation comes. Because if you're looking at your Bible, if you have the NIV, which most of us use here, and that's the translation that the guys passed out a bit ago, it doesn't say it that way. It says generations come and go. The NIV has smoothed it out to say it the way we normally say it. Comes and goes. But in Hebrew, it literally says goes and comes. Now, why does that matter? Well, that's important for the meaning Therefore, I wish they had kept it that way. A generation goes and a generation comes. That word order actually places the emphasis on the replacement of one generation by another. The generation that goes is replaced by the one that comes. It's a process that's like that of the other observations that are given in verses 4 through 7. In spite of constant changes, in reality, nothing changes. So one generation goes, another one comes. There's no gain. Verse 4, in that sense, is similar to verse 7, which says, All streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. In spite of all this water pouring into the sea, it's not full. There's no change. So in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Nothing changes. There's no profit, nothing gained. And then from the earth, Solomon moves to the sun. And there also he observes cycles that do not change anything. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The description of the sun here in Ecclesiastes 1 is quite different from the perspective of the psalmist who said in Psalm 19, verses 4 and 5, in the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out, the sun does, like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy and like a strong man runs to its course with joy. That's the way the psalmist sees what the sun is doing. But in Ecclesiastes, the sun rises and the sun sets and literally in verse 5, pants to the place where it rises. It struggles to the place where it rises. The sun gasped for breath, as it were, from its circuits. 
Meanwhile, it does not attain anything by going around and round. It is mere toil for following its daily journey. There's no opportunity for rest to make itself ready for the repeat performance. And so it's all pauseless, breathless, treadmill-like repetition that the sun goes through. Just like generations, one just goes through the other. The sun just goes through its motions. And then from the earth and the sun, Solomon turns to the wind. Verse 6. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. So while the sun, at least from our perception always moves from east to west, the wind goes to the south and goes around to the north. But unlike the sun, which is trapped in a constant cycle from east to west, the wind seems to be entirely free. Solomon calls attention to the the rapid and repeated movements, literally going, turning around, turning around, turning around, going. So it's just like whirling dervish is the wind, free to blow where it will. But the upshot of all of this turning around is this. On its circuits, the wind returns. So even the wind, Solomon is saying, is caught in a rut. Even the wind follows a fixed path and nothing is gained. So from the earth and then the sun and then the wind, he finally takes a look at the sea. Verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. He's saying that nothing changes in the, in the water and in the bodies of water, even though there's all this motion going on, even all this flowing going on. Now, you may not believe that if you watch a lot of Disney. What does Disney have to do with this? All the theology I've ever learned, I learned by watching Disney movies with my daughters when they were young. And I remember us watching Pocahontas, and Pocahontas singing a song that starts this way, What I love most about rivers is, you can't step in the same river twice. That's a well-known song in that movie called Just Around the River Bend. It goes on to say, the water's always changing, always flowing. Now, unbeknownst to most, Pocahontas was quoting an ancient Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. So Disney may tell your kids pagan stuff, like the circle of life is endless. Did you know the circle of life is not endless? That this natural life will end, and this natural life will end for everybody? But even if it's pagan as long as it's cute. When it's a battle between cute and pagan, cute always wins. Now, the sermon's not about how bad Disney is. We watch a lot of Disney movies. And uh, it is saying, just listen with discernment to what you hear. And the idea in pagan philosophy that indeed the universe is eternal, And that it is indeed changing is not what the Bible teaches. One commentator says that in verse 7, Solomon 
is speaking of the flow of water into the sea and the sea never being full because he may be thinking about the Dead Sea. At almost 1,400 feet below sea level, it's the deepest sea on earth and therefore without outlet. While the Jordan River and many wadis empty into the Dead Sea, it does not overflow. The same is true of the Mediterranean Sea and the oceans. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, that is the sea, there they continue to flow. Now we know, of course, that the sea is not full because the water evaporates and the clouds bring the rain back to the land. And that's another cycle. That's not the point of this verse, verse 7. The point is rather that the streams continue to flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. All that activity shows no results, no gain. The whole world is a scene of incessant movement and activity. But is it purposeful, meaningful activity? For all of that constant motion that characterizes the universe, one would think that something is being accomplished. But no, says Solomon, even as for thousands of years, people come and go and these movements come and go. Semblance of progress is really only a mirage. Activity is everywhere. Everything's in perpetual motion like that hamster in a wheel, but no destination is reached. This display of endless cosmic exertion is all for naught, says Solomon. The earth remains the same. The sun seems always to toil in the same orbit. The wind returns on its circuit and turns on its circuits. The sea does not fill up. Earth, fire, air, and water are all caught in a rut. And if the basic elements for the ancient world, and that's what were the four basic elements for the ancient world, Earth and fire and air and water. And if all of those gain nothing from all of their toil, then surely human beings gain nothing from theirs. That's what Solomon is saying. Work apart from God is like the monotonous repetition of nature. I say in your outline. And it's like the restlessness of human nature. It's like the repetition of nature, but also the restlessness of not just nature in general, but of human nature in particular. Solomon sums it all up in verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. So these all things refers to those cycles that were just mentioned in verses 4 through through 7, these cycles of nature. All of them are wearisome. And contemplating, thinking about all these things is wearisome. It's more than one can say. And that more than one can say is the first of three parallel phrases. More than one can say, the eye never has enough, the ear uh, does not have its fill of hearing. And each phrase offers a concrete illustration, this time now from, from human life of the continuous operation of the mouth and the eye and the ear. The mouth simply cannot say enough about the wearisome repetition of feudal cycles that we see in nature. No one can speak meaningfully about the world. That is, no one can explain or influence or control it. And the eye, too, 
never reaches the point that it cannot take in more, nor does the ear become so that that it can't take in anymore. Each phrase offers a concrete illustration about this continuous monotonous motion in life. The mouth cannot say enough about this wearisome reputation, can't speak meaningful aboutfully about it. The ear never reaches the point that it, or excuse me, the eye never reaches the point that it cannot take in more and the ear never becomes so filled with sound that it can't accept any more impulses from the outside world. The ceaseless activity of the generations and the sun and the wind and those streams, all of that is mirrored, says Solomon in verse 8, in human life, in our lives. As all of this activity in nature gains nothing, so all human activity of speaking and seeing and hearing gains absolutely nothing. Then in verse 9, Solomon approaches his point about this lack of gain, but he does it from a different angle. Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again seems to go back to these feudal cycles that are displayed in nature. The generations will keep going and coming, as will the sun and the wind and the streams. What has been will be again. Nothing new, no gain. But then he switches, does Solomon, to human history. You look back on human history, and he says, and what has been done is what will be done. So in human history, too, he says, we see frantic activity, but it's not going anywhere. All of its futile repetition, what has been done will be done again. And he concludes, then there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Human history also shows that there's no gain. And if there's no gain in human history, then there's certainly no gain for individuals who are presently part of that, making that history. There is nothing new. Now, with all that, verse 10 introduces an objection. Somebody's listening to all of this. And if you're still listening, you may be thinking to yourself something like verse 10. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? I mean, the Bible's making this claim there is nothing new. There's nothing new in nature. It just keeps going through the same motions. There's really nothing new in in history, in human history. There is nothing new anywhere. And you start thinking, is there something new? You say, well, what about a baby? A baby comes into the world. That's new. But that baby is going to be part of verse 4. Generations go and generations come. And anything that you can think of that to us for the moment looks novel and new, it too is going to fit the descriptions that have already been given. It's same old, same old. It was here already, verse 10 says. In answer to that question, is there really anything new? I try to think of Is there something new? And the answer at the end of verse 10 is it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And the cycles just continue. And it ends in verse 11 with this. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Yikes. 
So if there's no gain, if there's nothing profitable in all this human activity, in all these generations, throughout human history, you see it in nature, will I at least get some recognition that will last for what I've done? And verse 11 says, nah, you'll be forgotten too. Those who have gone before are forgotten. You will ultimately be forgotten as well. Solomon in all of this, though, in verses 3 through 11, does not mention God at all. God is not part of the picture that Solomon has painted in verses 3 through 11. That's why I keep underscoring that this is the perspective from under the sun. This is the way it looks apart from God. Apart from God, there is no value to our work. But I say in your outline, the work apart from God is of no value. Work for God is of eternal value. And I want to spend our remaining time talking about that. Because this is how to find meaning in this otherwise meaningless world. And work for God is not only of value, but it's of eternal value. Now, Jesus recognized this same issue of life under the sun being of no ultimate value when he asked famously in Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? For someone to give themselves for that which ultimately is meaningless, what will the gain be? What will the profit be? The answer is nothing, just like with Solomon. So there's something and some things and someone beyond this world. There is a perspective that is other than confined to under the sun. And so I say in your outline, work for God looks at life beyond creation. It looks at life beyond nature. Solomon has given us these illustrations in verses 4 through 7 of the earth and the sun and the wind and water. But there is a perspective that looks beyond the natural creation. Solomon has shown us that it looks like it changes, but it really stays the same. He said for us in verses 4 through 7, the more things change, the more they what? The more they stay the same. So the purpose of, of water is seen in the Bible from a different perspective. I'm going to give that to you in a moment. But the Bible tells us that most people live with the perspective, confined to the perspective that Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Famously in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says this of scoffers, those who scoff at the message of Jesus, at the good news of the gospel. And as part of their scoffing, they say this, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do you see what they're saying? We're trapped in these cycles. 
Nothing from outside the natural world is going to intervene. Where is this coming, this second coming that he promised? It's not going to happen because everything is confined to the mechanical universe. That's the view from under the sun. That's what Solomon has told us. But then if looked at from another perspective, a much, an infinitely wider perspective, you take things like water. And rather than it just being a repetitious cycle of flowing but never filling and no gain and no profit, here's what the psalmist says. God makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. Now, look at that. God is the one who does this. Solomon said nothing about God because he's looking at it from under the sun. But the psalmist is saying this is the right perspective. God is the one who makes this happen. There actually is purpose to it. He goes on, does the psalmist. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst with that water that God gives. Further, the birds of the sky nest by the waters and they sing among the branches. And so from a godly perspective, from an above the earth perspective, there's intelligent design by God behind what the water does, behind even the changing of the seasons, the movement of the the planets. The Bible says this in that same chapter, that same psalm. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. God brings darkness. It becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. Now, let me just stop there. Here's what that's saying. That God made it this way so that primarily during the day, we're going to see in a moment, people can work and then at night, Animals come out, can come out and get their food. God is the one who designed it that way. All of the beasts of the forest then prowl at night when the darkness comes. And then it goes on to say, the lions roar for their prey and they seek their food from who? From God. The sun rises and they, the lions, steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. So the people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. So yes, there are these cycles. And yes, the moon and the sun do go in this repetition. But it's all for a grand purpose. A purpose designed by God. For His creatures. That's the view from above the sun. That God is at work in the world. He's intervened in the natural order. Work for God is of eternal value. It looks at life beyond confined to natural creation. And I say in your outline. It looks at life beyond the senses. Beyond what your senses hear, see, taste. Remember in verse 8, Solomon said, you know, the eye can never see too much. The ear can never hear too much. The mouth can never say. But the view from above the sun looks at life Beyond the senses. There's a hymn. I am his and he is mine. It has a verse in it that says heaven above for the Christian. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is richer green. And I love this line. Something lives in every hue. 
that Christless eyes have never seen. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen, and I will add, and never can see. Because God gives a wider perspective to his people to see his activity in what otherwise looks like the monotony of nature. We look at it beyond creation. We look at it beyond our senses. Jesus asked the question in the Sermon on the Mount, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? That is, isn't life about more than just your natural realm and just that which you can observe and taste and feel and sense? That's why the Bible says famously in 2 Corinthians 5, and we sang earlier today, we live by faith and not by sight. You see, friends, we see beyond the natural world. We see a God who is beyond the natural world and what he is doing in that natural world. So work for God can be of eternal value if we look at life beyond creation, if we look at life beyond the senses. And then I say in your outline, lastly, we look at life beyond this world. We look at life beyond this time. That is, there is really life after death. There really is a reward at the end of our time here. This is not all there is. It's not confined just to this time frame, just to the natural cycles, just to what our senses can take hold of. There is a world and a life beyond this world. And because that's true, then the work that you are doing right now, the work that all of us do right now, is not done in vain if done for the purpose for which God has given us that ability. In the famous chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, that is all about the resurrection and the centrality of the resurrection to the good news of Christ. In that chapter, it ends with a summary in verse 58. Long chapter, 58 verses worth. And that last verse starts with the word, therefore, you see it on the screen. So therefore, based upon the fact that Christ has raised and he's the first fruits of our resurrection, and therefore all who are in Christ will also be raised, then there is a significant life after this life. That's what the resurrection chapter is saying. Therefore, because of that, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Here's why. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Outside of the Lord, apart from God, it don't mean nothing. But in Jesus, it means everything. Because you will be raised, because there is real life after death, you will be rewarded for that which you do for the Lord. None of it is in vain. Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 12 of the rich fool. He was rich, but he was a fool. And he said with regard to his riches, I've amassed so much, I'm going to build for myself greater barns, greater storehouses. The Bible says that God told him, you fool. 
God calls him, you fool. Today, your life will be required of you. And after telling that story, Jesus said this. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. If you're pursuing your career, if you're looking at your work only as the hamster on the treadmill, only looking at it from the perspective under the sun, then it not only means nothing ultimately, but it will, and it will profit nothing. But Jesus says it's even worse. You're not living for the purpose for which you were made, and it will cost you eternally. So Jesus said in John 6, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So what do I do? What do you do? I mean, it really is depressing under the sun. It really is meaningless if it's all confined to just this life. If I'm just going through the motions, doing my work, spending half of my life, half of my waking hours doing something that doesn't matter, what do I do? Let me give you two things to do. As you go to work tomorrow, in your home, in your workplace, wherever it is, do these two things. Consider why you work. Related to that is consider for whom you work. The reason I work is the same reason that I do everything. The reason you work is the same reason for which you do everything. It is to be to the praise of His glorious grace. It is for you to bring glory to Him. I do it in order to bring glory to Him in the way I work, but also in using the fruit of that labor to advance His work. So ask yourself, why do I work tomorrow morning? And thank God that He gives you the opportunity to do that, engaging in activity that is to His glory and can give you fuel, can give you fruit to carry out His work in the world. And then secondly, the second thing, first ask why you work, and then remind yourself... How should I work? I should labor as unto the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 says, Not with eye service, in the King James language, not with eye service as men pleasers. That is, not only when your boss's eye is upon you, because God is, is looking, and God is, has designed you to be a craftsman or a craftswoman in the work that you do. So give care to how you work as representing God. Tennis star Boris Baker, Becker was at one time at the very top of the tennis world, and yet he was on the brink of suicide. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. But he says, it's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. He says, I had no inner peace I was like a puppet on a string. And Becker is not the only one to feel that sense of emptiness. The echoes of a hollow life pervade our culture. One doesn't have to read many contemporary biographies to find the same frustration and disappointment. Jack Higgins 
is an author of a number of successful novels. He was asked what he would like to have known as a boy. Jack, what's the one thing you would like to have known when you were a boy? Here was his answer. That when you get to the top, there's nothing there. You see, when you get done with a rat race, there's nothing there. And it amounts to nothing. And that's why your take-home truth is this. Apart from God, we gain nothing from our work. But conversely, if done for God, and if done in a way that brings glory to God, then our work has eternal value. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the wise words of the wisest man who's ever lived, Solomon. We thank you for preserving those words for us to instruct us. And Lord, his words written 3,000 years ago are as relevant for us today as they were then. Because human sinful life has not changed. We are indeed caught in the trap under the sun until you invade our hearts and give us the perspective from above the sun. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us that. That you've given us your spirit that, that enlightens us, that illumines us so that we see with different eyes. And we see creation then not just as monotonous, but as your grand design and your hand behind all things. And we see the beauty of it because we see you behind it. Lord, we thank you then that our lives are not just biding time, but rather for us, every day matters right now, counts forever for those who belong to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to be people who recognize that every day when we rise to do the work to which you have called us. Help us to remember why we work for your glory and help us to remember how we're to do that work in order to represent you with the craftsmanship and the skill that we go through that work, whatever it may be. And Lord, you redeem all of these otherwise mundane things for your glory. We ask you to do that in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.